If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. I would hope never to feel so confident in my theology as not to be willing to correct a wrong view once presented with compelling evidence. Chad Ball in Deconstructing Hell. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We're talking with Chad Ball today. He's a father, author, blogger, teacher, and is currently pursuing his doctorate in theology and ministry in open and relational theology. And Esther and I met Chad when we were contributing to a book that he edited called Deconstructing Hell. And so I think we'll probably talk more about that later, but we're really excited to have you on, Chad. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. We're ready to dive in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Before we get into some of the good stuff, what does your day look like? What does your family look like? And then outside of some of these heavier, nerdier topics, what really makes your heart come alive? Yeah. Wow. Great questions. Um, So yeah, I would say my day, gosh, probably depends on the day. (laughs) From a career standpoint, I'm a pharmacist at a local grocery chain drugstore in Louisville, Ohio. This is currently my 20th year doing that. So I I truly enjoy it. I help support the family, obviously. I get to feel like I'm forming relationships with people in the community and and get to help them and really meet specific needs, you know, that they have. So I I love it. But on days that I'm not working in the pharmacy, I'm usually involved in my seminary work. So as Liz mentioned, I'm currently a student at Northwind Theological Seminary, where I've been given the opportunity to study under a person who I know you guys are friends with, many of us are friends with, but Dr. Thomas J. Ord. And the degree that I'm pursuing is, as mentioned, the doctorate in theology and ministry and open relational theology. So between those two things, I keep myself busy. Yeah. You know, I, I will say my super secret nerdy thing that I do. Oh, I love it. I'm a miniature gamer. So I play okay. uh, this game called Age of Sigmar, uh, Warhammer. There's another one called Marvel Crisis Protocol. But we put these little figures, put them together, paint them, we put them on a, on a table, and we roll some dice and play some games with them. So you kind of have to know it to know what it is. And if you know it, you love it. But otherwise, it seems pretty nerdy. But that's probably my once a week hobby that kind of gets me... We love that. Yeah, I love that. We love that. So what does your family look like? Yeah. So I have a beautiful wife. Her name's Christy. We've been married for, well, gosh, let's see. It'll be five years in November. I have a beautiful stepdaughter. Her name is Leah. Uh, She's eight. She's going into second grade. Just a a fireball. She's extremely fun and an extremely fun part in her life right now. We have two cats, Jinx and Izzy, uh, who are our buddies. And we have one leopard gecko. And his name is Bookie 
because Leah says he looks like the spine of a book. That's so cute. Hmm. Yeah. Really cute. <laughs> oh my gosh. We had leopard geckos with my boys growing up. We had Rex the ge- leopard gecko. And then we had a partner because I had two boys and we had them. And then the one gecko kind of didn't let the other gecko eat. It was crazy. But they're like, oh gosh. they're like so attached to humans. I never knew that. Yeah. We tried to give it away when my boys grew up and it wouldn't eat. So then we took it back. So fun fact about my leopard gecko is he rarely ever eats unless I physically hand feed him. Yes. Wow. He will go for two days with his mealworms in his bowl and I will come in and we'll think something's wrong with him or he's sick, but I will get the mealworms out and I'll put them, sit them there right in front of him and he eats them up within seconds. So it's maybe his bonding time with me, but yeah, he is, he is a very attached little guy and surprising because you wouldn't think a reptile would necessarily be like Yeah, that's so funny. Right. We call it the Labrador Retriever of lizards. (laughs) He's so cute too. So yeah, he's, he's, he's he's a blast. I love that. Fun facts. Learning about leopard geckos. Who knew? (laughs) You guys never knew. Now all of our people are going to be like, oh, what's a good gift for my kid for Christmas? A leopard gecko. A leopard gecko. (laughs) You know, they're not that expensive, but yeah, so it'll uh, get pre-prepared for about 10, 12 years. I think that's their lifespan. Mm. Yes. It's so cute. Well, like Liz said, we both had the the privilege of being a part of the wonderful book you compiled and edited titled Deconstructing Hell. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your faith journey and why in the world would you want to put this book together on like we call a very highly controversial subject and then get it out into the world? Yeah. So that's a that's a loaded question. That's a great question, though. <laughs> Gosh. All right. So I grew up a Christian. I attended an evangelical church. I still attended evangelical church, even though I don't know that I would necessarily use the term any longer to describe myself, at least if you mean things like penal substitutionary atonement, infallibility of scripture, things like that. I'm certainly not a fundamentalist. But like I said, I, we still go to an evangelical church. Uh, we do faith with evangelicals. And honestly, I have few, if any, qualms uh, with the evangelical faith. I think fundamentalism in the church can lead to some dangerous things. Mm-hmm. It can lead to elitism, escapism, really presenting God in non-relational ways. And gosh, not to mention how evangelicalism has been, you know, tied up into politics these days. It's a word that I don't like anymore because it's tied to so many negative things. Mm. But I'm honestly fortunate to not be someone who has a lot of church hurt or carries baggage from trauma in their upbringing. I'm honestly just someone who wants to pursue God and pursue truth Mm. wherever that path leads me. So when I see things that are harmful, I especially like to zero in on them and take a second look. And I think really that's where the quote that you shared at the beginning, Esther, comes from, originates from, you know, that I, that I hope to never feel so confident in my theology, you know, to not be willing to correct a wrong view once presented with compelling evidence. Mm-hmm. And that's really what led me to several years ago, I published a book called God Unbound, an Evangelical Reconsiders Tradition in Search of Truth. And things that were just kind of sticking points for me, I looked into further and just had a chance to put my thoughts down on paper. So I talked about free will versus predestination, science and faith. You know, how can we marry what we know about evolution and the best science to the best faith and a relationship with God? Something I call evangelical elitism, where once we tend to call ourselves evangelicals, a lot of the time we tend to, you know, feel like we're we're better than, we have the secrets to God, we have 
you know, you have to be like us or you don't know God or can't know God. And then really talked about the problem of theodicy, which is in short, why do bad things happen to good people? Mm. And, you know, if, if God exists and God's a God of love, then why all this negativity, all this hurt and pain and, you know, all the bad things that happen in the world. So mm. just got to address some of that stuff. But one of the biggest conversations that came out of God Unbound was the conversation on hell and specifically on eternal conscious torment. Mm. So because of that, because of continued conversations that came afterwards, I you know, thought it was enough of a compelling subject to dive into and really dedicate a whole book to. I knew I wouldn't be able to be the sole expert in the field. So I sought out people who would be. Hopefully through that, we put something together that's that's helpful to folks. And so between the book and the Deconstructing Hell podcast that we've been doing, our conversation has reached thousands of people and it's it's been a huge blessing. So it's, it's turned out to be a pretty good opportunity, but yeah, that's why I decided to undertake it, I guess. I love the position that you're in, Chad, where you're like, you're on the inside, right? You still consider yourself an evangelical. There's still so many things that you believe in, right? That keep you in the faith. And yet you're not afraid to ask the hard questions. You're not afraid to say, this is wrong. And I think there's probably so many people who are in your position who feel those things, but aren't willing to say them because of the repercussions. Yeah. And so you're really incredible in so many ways, the steps that you're taking to try and bring about change for this faith that you love so much, you know, and in so many ways, I think Esther and I are trying to do something similar, yeah. but you're much more in the thick of it. And, and the cost is, is much greater. I think in a lot of ways, I don't know if you feel that way. Do you feel that there's sort of a cost to being so vocal about the things that you find not okay? I mean, I'm sure there's people who disagree with you, right? Yeah. Right. So before the book came out, I, at my, my church and I go to a kind of a large multi-campus church taught a systematic theology course there. And so that was kind of really a big part of what I considered my ministry and something I really enjoyed. But yeah, after this book came out, had a few conversations with the pastors and was asked not to continue doing that. So I, I've kind of mm -hmm. lost my ability to have a ministry, at least for now, inside that church. So it, it, there is a cost, right? But I think God's worth it. I think truth is worth it. I think other people's relationship with God is worth it. So I, I, I think that's a pretty, pretty small price to pay. Hmm. But yeah, 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 for sure. Amen to that. Just even your own integrity, you have to like lay down at bed at night and sure. be true to what you feel like has been revealed to you or your eyes have been opened to. And yeah, it is worth it. I think about the price that Liz and I've paid and I wouldn't go back for the world. Yep. I just wouldn't because I have to go to bed at night. <laughs> right. Right. The biggest thing is you have to be okay with yourself. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're the one you're left with when, when no one else is around. So, you know, I think integrity matters when it comes to that. And I would say I'm in a fortunate position. My, my salary, my source of income, I'm a pharmacist. It's never been tied to what I think theologically or my theological beliefs. And I, I've really gained a sympathy for pastors and teachers and we know many of them. I have Josh Patterson, who does the Rethinking Faith podcast and is a big part of the Deconstructing Hell podcast and project, you know, was in that situation where what he believed affected his family's income and well-being and their support. And so really deconstructing away from that is costly. Yeah. And even the conversations I'm having within the church, like I think a lot of people deep down question things they're not really willing to 
in places they're not really willing to go because there are those strings attached and consequences tied to it. Yeah. And I think that's a barrier that we all need to overcome. And that's one of the unfortunate things about full-time ministry, but you know, it is what it is. I think it's possible still to have a positive impact in those spaces, but it's nice to feel the freedom to do so. Because again, my thoughts and my beliefs aren't tied to the support I'm able to provide to my family. So, right. So what was it about hell, particularly eternal conscious torment that like you wrote that other book and you had a bunch of subjects, but what was it in your brain that made you say, let's focus on this one particular issue? So my, my passion, uh, you know, I think you, you originally asked what makes my heart come alive. And it's theology, it's God, it's knowing God, it's helping other people to know God. I would say that if there's a mission I have in life, it's to make God make sense to people. And two of the biggest intellectual barriers that I've experienced to that, just with my closest friend group, have been, why is there so much suffering in the world, right? The great question of theodicy. And why would a good God torture someone in hell for eternity for not believing the right things. I think that has done more to impugn the character of a God that is love than almost any other doctrine out there. Mm. And it's something that the majority of the church still hangs to. And it's an unfortunate thing because you can't find it in the Bible. I think you have to believe it and then find it, you know, and then read it into scripture. It's a process called eisegesis, reading your beliefs into scripture. Then you would ever objectively approach scripture and get that doctrine from. Mm. It's not in the Old Testament. It's very scarcely justified in the New Testament. And you have to do some, some back bends to do it. But yet it hangs on as something that really defines and characterizes God. And I, gosh, you know, it's low hanging fruit to me because I think there's very little education that needs to take place to realize that mm. one, it's not something that defines who God is. And two, if you think it's in the Bible somewhere, take a look. It's not. It's interesting how much education, right, on a specific subject can really shift things. Yeah. And being able to provide that to people, right? Like this is something you're like, okay, mm. I can bring a bunch of people together who can put this out there in a way that just your average person can understand, right? And provide them information so that they can make their own decisions. So much of, for uh, those of us who have been hurt by the church in some way or traumatized, we just didn't have any knowledge. We just had this one person or yeah. few people, right? The head of the church telling us this one thing yeah. and telling us that it's in the Bible and that we need to believe it. And there was no other option. And so yeah. just for giving other options to people allows people to make their own decisions yeah. based on evidence that they didn't know existed. So I just think that's really, really important. Not everybody is going to go on their own search to study, you know, certain topics in the Bible, but if we can just kind of like bring it to them and put it out there as an option, then they might be able to see it differently. The idea that I didn't have to believe in hell felt like this huge weight. I was like, what? There's another way to view this. And I don't have to necessarily believe the way I've been taught all my life. Yeah, I think it's fantastic to be able to realize that and to realize that it's there's no cognitive dissonance in doing it. The more you learn about it, the easier it is to let go of that of that doctrine. Yeah, I love that. So in your chapter, which you I think you wrote a couple chapters, but in your opening chapter, you talk about this thing that we've referred to called open and relational theology. Yeah. So can you? I know you're really passionate about it because you're getting your whole doctorate in it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just give us like the Sparks Notes version of what does that mean? 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, open and relational theology, it's based on two simple premises, uh, if that's a word, or maybe there's too many issues. <laughs> but the, the future is open and God is relational. So it, it's pretty, pretty easy you know, to break down. But basically the idea for it is to be a response to really the classical theological ideas that God is aloof, impersonal, unchangeable. And that the future is somehow already predetermined and settled by, you know, this God's omnipotent divine will. Instead, open relational theology claims that God is loving and works hand in hand with us to create the future. Mm. So God is love and God loves us. And, you know, we think in open and relational theology that a loving God cannot control. It would be the opposite of love to be a controlling God. So that's the essence of it. So you may also be able to see that if these are the two basic premises that open and relational theology is a fairly wide umbrella. Mm -hmm. So you can have your conservative evangelicals under that umbrella and affirm those two basic things, but you can also have those that believe in God that might not even consider themselves Christian. Yeah, I think that's all a good thing. I think dialogue is what we need to get to truth. So wherever we're at, I, you know, I believe that God honors those that seek him. And I think that's the types of things that open and relational theology tend to foster. This is definitely a new concept, I think, for a lot of people who are listening. Yeah. Can you maybe give an example of ways in which we might partner with God, right? Or God might partner with us, maybe even some day-to-day -day tangible ways. Because I think when you grow up feeling like, you know, God is sort of in control of everything and has, you know, his hands in everything, this idea of partnering with God can seem very mystical. I mean, I think in general, it literally is the everyday. So, you know, I think the basic premise that, you know, and Tom Ward, uh, who's the person that I'm, I'm learning under, wrote this book called The Uncontrolling Love of God and another book called God Can't. And basically the underlying premise is that if God is a God of love, then God is a God who does not control and love does not control. And so I don't think that there is a God out there that is predetermining things, that is controlling my decisions, my movements. I don't think that God has a pair of hands, you know, that is able to necessarily rescue a drowning child in the middle of a lake. But I think that God can compel us to do those things. Mm -hmm. But I think it takes us responding to God to do it. So when we see something bad, when we see something wrong in the world, you know, God is the urge, the lore, the compulsion to do something about it. But ultimately, it's up to us. Yeah. Mm. So I think God is the most powerful being in the universe. But I think omnipotence if that means having all the power, that doesn't define who God is well. I think that we have power to respond. Mm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of the essence of it or the idea behind yeah. it. Yeah. You know, we all know stories of people who were sort of waiting for God to kind of save them from something and miss an opportunity to do something yeah. for themselves. And I think that whole idea empowers people to know themselves, right? To connect to God on a soul level, right. this piece of the puzzle that maybe we were missing for so long, you know, being able to connect to self, being embodied, being grounded, right? Relating to God in this yep. other way. Yep. That's really powerful and really, really healing. Classical theology, the only relationship, if you can say it's a relationship with God, you know, that a classical theologian believes in which someone is controlling in that way would be the the god man creation and to the open and relational theologian it just doesn't make sense right so i you know i think it's more like a husband wife relationship or a father daughter relationship where you can encourage you can point down the right path 
You might be infinitely more intelligent than your son or daughter, mm. but they still have to make their own decisions. Yeah. You know, and so you be as loving of a parent as possible. And that love has to be unconditional, but ultimately they have to make their own choices. And I, I think that's what God does for us. I didn't know I was an open and relational theology holder until I'm thinking about my chapter in the book and Liz's chapter where I say, like, we don't want to be pushed by fear, but led by love. And then Liz's whole chapter on gentle parenting. And I, this idea of control is really what happens when you're afraid. And so if we have a God who's controlling every mood, is he afraid? I mean, I find that fear and control seem to go in tandem. And so we're making God out to be this God of fear where he has to control us in order to do what? Like regulate himself. <laughs> I think about my own children in that regard. And I wrote my chapter in Liz wrote her chapter on parenting. And it's like, wow, what we can't have control and love. Those things do not go hand in hand. So how do you have a God who's all loving and all controlling? And what I definitely learned from unpacking all of this is that actually I need a God to be in control. I'm regulating my own fear by being like, oh, God's in control, you know, almost shirking my responsibility at the same time and regulating myself like, well, you know, those kids that are like starving down the street. God's in control or God's got this. God's, God's got this. Got this. Yeah. yeah, it's the ultimate scapegoat, right? Yeah, it's the so ultimate true. scapegoat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Esther, it's so true. I think about what you were just saying. And like when I'm trying to control my kids, I am so dysregulated mm-hmm. in like a completely unhealthy way mm-hmm. that to say, right, that God is that way, like it actually just doesn't make sense when you really start to think through it and you really start to unpack it. We'll get right back to today's podcast episode, but we wanted to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters, Mackenzie Tata, Aubrey Trueblood, and Jiyun Lee. Thank you so much for your support. For just $3 a month, you can be a part of our private Facebook group and help us keep the lights on at Deconstructing Mamas. And now, back to the episode. Again, we talk about hell, but we talk about, you know, theodicy and and why do bad things happen. I mean, that's really what ultimately took me down the path of open relational theology because I couldn't justify all the crap that happens in the world with a controlling God or a God that would allow certain things like that to happen, right? So look at the Holocaust, look at war, look at, you know, murder and rape and all the all the awful things that we ascribe to God because there's part of some bigger divine hidden will or plan, right? Because God has to be in control. Man, that's a lot of baggage for God to carry, you know? Like that's a lot of barriers too when God is the opposite of that loving and wanting to heal, doing his best to prevent, right? Those things from happening, but he needs our cooperation. And I think that helped me answer a lot of previously unanswerable questions. Yeah. And the idea of just partnering with God, it doesn't, ever since I read Tom Ord's book, God Can't, it's like, it doesn't mean he can't do anything. (laughs) Like we don't have to be black and white thinkers. And it doesn't mean we can do everything. Correct. It's this idea of a partnership where we're co-creators and co-sufferers and all those things that when Jesus says like, I and the father are one and we're doing this together and we're on a mission together. It's sort of this beautiful, what you call relational idea. We're in relationship and partnership. And I love that idea and we're going to bring it down to the nitty gritty of parenting yeah. of that. How does this play out with our kids? Like how does open and relational theology play out with our kids? How does it change us when 
like hell, the controlling nature of hell, fire and brimstone, eternal conscious torment comes off the table and you, when that's taken off and you don't, aren't trying to control every move of your kid. Well, for me, and I said this in my chapter, and I know Liz experienced it as a child, when hell is there, yeah, it's the ultimate form of control. Yeah. It's all about keeping our kids out of hell. And so when that goes off the table and we can be partners with our children yeah. to create a more just world or a more loving place or even a or more a whole and healed family, like that is just a really, really cool thing where everybody kind of takes responsibility for themselves. Like, how do you approach that with your stepdaughter? Like, how do you approach the subject of hell or do you not? Or how does open and relational theology play out in your parenting? <laughs> yeah. And so to answer the, the hell question, we have not, I have not, and uh, and our church does not, you know, necessarily broach the subject of hell with, you know, someone that, that young. And one of the things that I appreciate about our church is, even though if you go deep down in the doctrine, you know, I, most, most pastors there would affirm, unfortunately, eternal conscious torment. I have been there for over 10 years now, and the subject's been brought up once in a sermon, maybe twice. Mm. So it's a very, very relational church and focusing on the positive aspects of relationship with Jesus and knowing God and the implications of living a life in that way. And so I'm very fortunate that the church kind of agrees with our parenting style to where we're not necessarily having that conversation with her. And I, I think our heart is really just a affirm that God is there, that God is love and that he loves her and that she knows that and she's able to cultivate that relationship. So praying with her, reading the Bible with her, having conversations, you know, that focus on the love in that relationship and not the negative, I think is really how we approach that. So how it approaches, how it affects my parenting style or parenting style in general gosh, yeah, I mean, you guys have kids and you're, you're more experienced than me, but, you know, having uh, an eight-year-old stepchild, I, I definitely, definitely see the strong willingness, you know, of, of her and that she pulls the most away from us when we try to control her behavior, mm-hmm. you know, when voices get raised or mm-hmm. when we give a directive to her that leaves her no choice. Mm-hmm. And she's the most cooperative towards us and loving towards us when she does have a choice or when she has explained the reason for why she should be doing what she should be doing or the decisions that she makes. And so I think my open relational theology affects parenting in the sense that parenting is ultimately a partnership too. Mm. So how we relate to God is how we're going to relate to our kids. It's how we're going to relate to other people. And I think that's a big picture, right? Like when we talk about this doctrine of hell and uh, Esther, you mentioned it in your chapter, that if this is a God that would punish people for not obeying or believing the right things, we have a license, but not just license, a compulsion to approach our relationships with people in that same way. Mm -hmm. If the model we have to live by is a model that punishes and that separates and that disciplines in a harsh manner, then maybe that is the best way to go about parenting. But that's not the model we have in God, right? And so when we deconstruct eternal conscious torment, I think it helps us to deconstruct so much more than just that basic doctrine. It really affects how we think about God and therefore how we think about everybody else. Right. Including our kids. I find myself much more cooperative when I'm 
<laughs> I mean, that's just like if somebody's like, do this or else, my amygdala goes on fire. I'm just trying to regulate myself and be like, I either protect myself and go in, or I fight back, or I freeze. I do all the things that are my body's designed to do, where it's like, hey, would you like to do this or this? Or what do you think about this? Liz has been such a good example to me. It's been fun to watch Liz with little kids. I started to do this when my kids are older. I got to be with Liz a couple of weeks ago and her interaction with her daughter and her son, it's just fun. Like, oh, do you want to do this or this? Or what do you think about this? Do you want to go to lunch or do you want to go home for lunch? Just simple things where they have a say. We're silly to think that where we originate from, the God of love or the God of violence, right? Right. What we believe about where we originate from, we're silly to think it's not going to play out in our everyday. Yeah, and I mean, and to that too, I think one of the criticisms of open and relational theology is you come out with a very weak God, but gosh, it's kind of the opposite of the case, right? So what, what strength does it take to, as a parent, to lock your child in a room because they're being loud? you know, or to spank Mm -hmm. or, you know, to control this, however much they weigh, but you're obviously much bigger and stronger than them to physically control them, to force them to do what you want them to do. I I think there's weakness in that, but how much, how much more strength does it take to be a partner to your child, to parent in such a way that not only does their behavior get directed, but they're learning to do it for themselves when you're not around because you're showing them the why and the how and the what, and you're luring them towards good behavior without controlling them. So I flipped the argument back on its head. I think the open and relational God is a stronger God because it's the God that's the partner. Mm. And I think that's Mm. a model for parenting and really all our relationships. Right. That's so true, Chad. I feel like I talk so often with other parents who have little kids who are just like, this is so hard. Intentional parenting, gentle parenting, interrelational parenting, right? Things that like maybe we didn't grow up with is so hard. It's exhausting. It would be so much easier in so many ways to do some of those things that you said, right? To lash out in anger, to just say, go to your room and shut the door. You know, all of those things. It's so much easier sometimes to just yell than to be patient with a kid that you just want to like lose it on, right? And so I think that's such a good point. And I also just want to go back really quick because I think Esther made a really good point too about how for me and for for the three of us, we've learned so much of this through parenting other people, but you can also learn this through parenting your own self, Mm. right? So not all of us are parents and that's fine, but by reparenting ourselves, right? And saying, what do we need? How do I really react to somebody trying to control me? You know, we can, it might not be as in your face, but you're, you can learn the same things about how God might actually be relating to people based on what we need to thrive. Like everything, it has to start with us, right? It has to start with us understanding what kind of a God do I believe in as a father or, and we like say, or as a mother of both of those feminine and masculine, what do I believe in? And then how is, how has that affected me? Mm -hmm. You know, both Liz's chapter and my chapter started with what was it like for us as little girls and the God that we believed in. And this is the beauty of what we get to do now is what you said, your quote at the beginning, we get to re-examine as adults and go like, mm, no, that was not good for me as a child. That's not going to be good for anybody I'm in contact with, including my children. Yeah. And we're seeing it play out. We see the violence, the violent God playing out now all over the place in our society. 
the black and white God, you're all good, you're all bad, the not partnership God, not like, hey, like you said, let's have dialogue about this. Yeah. Let's just sit together and then we can figure out the solution to this together or the truth together. And everybody has a voice at the table. And so, wow, like playing out in parenting, everyone has a voice at the table, not for everything, obviously, because kids are kids, but more and more and more, they get a voice. Yeah. So it's that long, slow journey to partnership. I just, oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. I didn't know. I guess I'm an open and religious. The, what do you call somebody like me? An open and religious? theologian i was like I don't know. I mean, I don't know. theologian yeah. i was trying to think of the word that meant like the noun for this and it isn't theologist it's theologian wow i like theologist though <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like archaeologist you know what i mean like you're kind of like chipping away at something i like theologist i think we should use that the theology so oh. I, I yeah your guys stories i mean they're they're really some of the best and really the linchpin to the chapters in deconstructing hell the way that I set it up or the way that I envisioned it was really at the beginning of the book. Let's, you know, get the history behind hell. Why did we come to believe what we believe? Get the philosophy behind hell. Ryan Mullins did a great job in his chapter about the philosophy of eternal life. And then we had some systematic theology chapters. So what are some of the alternatives, right? So Tom gave his opinion. I gave my opinion. Keith Giles gave his opinion. And there are three diametrically opposite takes on what a good response should be. And so we, we like to pick at each other. If you listen to the Deconstructing Hill podcast, you'll get some of that. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, none of it matters if it doesn't affect your life. And so your guys' chapters was really the grounding of the book in the sense of, you know, how do I take this knowledge or whether I'm intellectually ready or not to deconstruct, what would that look like in real life? And how does, how does believing in the doctrine of, of eternal conscious torment? affect me in a negative way? And then what does it look like on the opposite side of that? And so I really appreciated your guys' chapters. You guys did not disappoint. I learned about you from your podcast, Liz, your dad shared when you guys were starting a podcast. And I thought, oh, oh yeah, okay. Deconstructing Mamas. All right. So that's, that's cool. Parenting, deconstruction. Sounds like something I should listen to. And so <laughs> uh, I am a Generation X anti-technology sort of person. So I'll embarrassingly say that I think your guys' podcast was my, maybe the first podcast I ever listened to. Wow. We're honored. (laughs) But uh, when I was thinking of the book, I mean, you guys were natural fits to how to really land the plane in that conversation. So what did you learn from Liz? Liz's chapter? I'd like to know. (laughs) Oh, gosh, gosh. So general parenting, right? So what was it, Liz? Uh, empathy, respect, understanding, and boundaries, yeah. right? Those were some of the... Yeah. yeah well, oh, look at you. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, like I said, they were, they were great chapters. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you gave some extremely important principles for um, our relationship with God, uh, our relationship with children. But then, like you said, parenting ourselves, right? You know, like how we should be approaching relationships in our own lives. So hmm. both of you said that you cannot believe in a God that, you know, would stand back and punish someone for not having right beliefs or send someone to an eternal torture chamber for not checking the right boxes. Mm-hmm. And you guys gave compelling stories for how that affected you. You know, I think both of you guys started out with how many times did you pray the prayer of salvation? Hopefully, you know, to hopefully not be the person that was predestined from all eternity to suffer in hell. That's a scary thing. Right. And it's even scarier that we believe that that's who God is, you know, 
Mark Harris was, he's a psychologist, but he got to write a great chapter in our book about hell anxiety and just the, the impact that religious trauma has and how real it is for a lot of people because of teachings like that. Yeah. Yeah. I have been learning so much. I'm kind of nerding out a little bit about sort of the psychology behind, you know, religious trauma, just as I'm working through my own trauma, right. And the pain that it's caused me and it really cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be taken for granted. We cannot not look at that. You know, you can't just say because it didn't harm you, it's not harming other people. Little kids are growing up thinking that if they take a wrong turn, they're burning forever in eternal torment. And that is traumatic. Mm -hmm. And we can't turn away and not look at it. You just can't. Yeah. So I think being able to have these kind of conversations, being able to say like, like you're saying, Chad, like I'm a Christian, right? I believe in a lot of this stuff, but there are certain things we cannot look at. And there's certain things that are really harming people. And we need, we need to look at that and what things are appropriate for children to hear and what things are, are not appropriate. I had posted something on social media the other day about just the Abraham and Isaac story, right? Like super traumatizing for little kids. Right. And someone had responded to me. It was actually one of our previous guests. And she had responded that her little sister sometimes would wake up at night crying and her dad would, you know, walk her around and rock her, whatever. And she, as an older sister, was afraid that God was going to ask her father to sacrifice her sister at some point during the night, during these sort of rocking times, which were probably really beautiful times, right? But this little girl was so afraid that this was going to happen to her sister. She would wake up at night and she would check on her sister after she went back to bed. And I was just thinking like, my gosh, Like that is so traumatizing, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually wanted to ask you, Chad, going back to being a parent, right? Are there certain things that you filter for your daughter? Because you're talking about reading the Bible to her. Do you filter certain things? You said you focus a lot more on relationship, right? And those types of things. But are there things that you filter? Do you feel like kids really need to be given all the information and just talked about it differently? Or do you think there's things that are age appropriate and we need to be more aware of when we're sharing certain things? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So it was initially hard years ago, and I forget the name of the book, but it was just a, it was a children's first Bible sort of thing that gave very basic stories. And I remember the first time we read through and talked about Jesus dying and coming back to life and, you know, and things like that. And I thought, gosh, I was a little nervous about that because how traumatizing, you know, that the person that we love, the person that loves us dying on a cross, I mean, that's violent. So I think it's hard because I think children can handle more than we think, but I also think that there's things that they're not necessarily ready for from the standpoint of being age appropriate. So I think it's a decision everybody has to make on their own. I do not like a lot of the violence in the Old Testament stories. I think you're calling out the Abraham and Isaac story. I think the flood and God somehow destroying all the earth, except for, you know, if we're taking that to be literal, which I don't, and I don't think most people should, that portrays God in a really negative way. And so I think for me, if it's ultimately true, it's something I try not to filter out. You know, Jesus dying on a cross, that's the truth. Mm. But if it's something possibly not true and potentially harmful, like Old Testament violence or eternal conscious torment, absolutely, that's not part of our conversation. Nor do I think it needs to be for a very long time. Mm. Yeah. And I think if I went to a church that harped on those things, I don't think we'd go to that church any longer. Yeah, right. Maybe a kid an eight-year-old, they see things that die, their animals die. And for me, the harm was, and it's your fault. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. right? And it's your personal fault is a very different story than, oh my goodness, look, we just watched, you know, Bambi and the mom dies and a hunter shot her and we have to unpack that, right? We have to unpack, wow, Jesus died, but guess what? They didn't win. I just think the end, it's your fault and the Abraham Isaac thing. And you have to be willing to sacrifice mother, your children on the altar of God, and he may or may not provide a ram. Yeah. So those are like the faulty, terrible things. Like I remember being like, oh, I have to give up my daughter for God. Sarah's an idol for me. And I'm like, I just actually had a very, very deep, strong love for my child. <laughs> but yet the Abraham story was there. And little did I know that she thought she was going to have to be sacrificed too. That one story did more negative and harm to me as a mom and my firstborn than any other story, than even the crucifixion. Yeah. Because it was like, we made it personal about you. Every story has to be taken personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point, Esther. I mean, I think, I think, like Chad said, everyone has to decide for themselves mm -hmm. what is going to work for their family, for their journey, right? Like, it's not a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I don't read the Bible to my kids, but I don't have a problem with people who do. You know what I mean? That's just not something that I'm doing. But, you know, we do talk about God. We do talk about Jesus. My daughter does ask me about Easter. And we have had conversations, right, about this man who died and didn't need to die right? Like this did not need to happen. This was not okay. And she doesn't understand maybe all of the theology behind it and some of the backstories. And, you know, I'm up in the air about that too. Yeah. But I think the way that you're talking to young people about things is part of the point. You know, as I was working through my chapter, just thinking about how important it is that we just have a basic understanding of like child development, <laughs> right? Like when we're talking to our kids, like just in general, not even about like God or theology, but like just having a basic understanding of what our kids are going to be able to handle and what they aren't going to be able to handle and the ways that they're thinking at each stage. So there's certain ages where things are much, can affect them much more, right, than other stages. So I think it's just this basic understanding of our children that we can take into all different areas of our life yeah. can just be really, really helpful. And then you make your decisions based on that. But I think, you know, a lot of us grew up with sort of this just kind of blanket understanding of like just what you do with kids to make them listen to you or to make them do things the way you need to. And now we're trying to figure out with our own kids, like, wait a second, like, how do we actually know who they are as people? And then parent in that way like it's very confusing and there's a lot of moving pieces and it's it's just tricky and I think at the end of the day we're all really doing our best yeah. right our best that we can right well doesn't that go to Chad your thing about open and relational theology mm. and non-controlling theology right with your kids exactly what Liz said absolutely yeah yeah so Chad if you were sitting with your daughter tell us her name again Leah Leah if you're sitting with your stepdaughter at dinner your wife can be there okay <laughs> <laughs> and then you could guarantee that she would listen to what you had to say. <laughs> that's that's a big that's a big caveat. Uh -huh. And then take it with her on her life's journey. What would be your message to her about God? Yeah. Faith and herself. Wow. I would say so it, maybe it's oversimplistic, but maybe it's the hardest thing to fully grasp, but I would say that you are loved. Mm -hmm. If I can drive that fact home. In fact, we were driving to, she's in uh, vacation Bible school now. We were driving there this morning and, you know, I just said, I, I want you to know, you, you realize that, that God loved you, right? That you are loved. And she said, yes. But I think that God loves you, that God formed you, that he's always with you. Mm -hmm. 
and that we have a simple job in this life. It's just to realize that. And in the hard times, I think it's hard to realize that, but to feel affirmed. We're relational beings. Mm -hmm. And I think we need relationships to survive. And we have access to this being that is nearer to us than a brother, right? That we can never escape from, that we just have to realize is there. And that can and should be the most powerful relationship we have. To realize that being loves us, Mm -hmm. I think would be the one thing I would want her to take with her wherever she goes. Oh, well, we always ask this question to end our podcast because our mantra is grace for who you have been and are now and space for who you are becoming and will be. So what is something that you have to work hard to show yourself grace for currently or about? And then what's something you want to give yourself space for? I think maybe it's the same answer to both, but Mm. right now you know, going to school, getting my degree, I'm being introduced to a lot of different people, a lot of different thinking and authors and theologians that I really have never read before. I don't know what to do with yet, you know, that are making arguments and are pushing my thinking in certain directions. But as someone who's kind of out there a little bit, at least has, you know, a couple of books published, is present active on Facebook, has a blog, I'm constantly processing those things. And I'm processing my thoughts in the public square even being on this podcast. So Mm -hmm. I think that the thing that I would like to give myself grace for is that I don't need to get it right all the time. And that what I believe right now might be diametrically opposed from what I believe six months from now. And certainly there are things six months ago that I wouldn't still say. So I think grace and space for me has to be focused in on my journey in learning. And that's that's what I'd like to, Mm -hmm. I guess, credit myself with. Mm. The ability to change my mind. And be okay with it. Yeah. Yep. I want to yep. say amen to that because we just joke. I don't agree with myself. I wonder what my 75-year-old self will think. Like it's yeah, what beautiful permission to be a human. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be so afraid of what I would put out there into the world mm. because I was like, what if this changes, right? Or what if I end up not actually believing this? And then when you just, yeah, when you just give yourself permission to just be a human that's constantly evolving and whose beliefs can evolve and change and you can still be held by God, it just, it takes so much pressure off. It really does. I'm a person, I have some tattoos and, you know, a lot of people who get tattoos, you talk to them years down the road and they might not have rather have gotten them, you know, and I, I think of in some weird way, I think of my theology as getting a tattoo or thinking of, put, thinking of putting a book or a thought out there as getting a tattoo. <laughs> I might not always agree with it, and it might be permanently out there, but it still reflects a point in time that represents me, even if that me is different. Yeah, wow. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, amazing. Get that tattoo. Uh, <laughs> that's, so, that's so true. That's really, really true. Oh, Chad. Brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, I love that. Well, tell us where people can find you. Yeah. So again, not being very tech savvy, I don't have all these social media platforms that you you kids use nowadays. So I'm uh, I'm, I'm basically just on face, the Facebook. <laughs> that, that's a new thing that I, I recently discovered, the Facebook. But I'm on, I'm on Facebook. So I'm, I'm pretty accessible there. Friend me, message me. I do occasionally, although I've been busy as of late, so I haven't contributed to as as, as much as I would like to. But thelaytheologian.com is a blog that I write. So you can, can find my stuff there. 
and then God Unbound and Deconstructing Help can be found on Amazon. So yep. visit, purchase, support. Please help us keep the lights on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. We'll get you. We're gonna get you on Instagram and Threads, Chad. Oh, that's I gonna be my goal. I'm told that I'm on Instagram. I don't have an uh, on my uh, electronic phone, but uh, I do click a button that says "Also Share on Instagram." So I, there's stuff there in that world. But there you go. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, and I have to say, um, thank you. Your humility and your desire to learn has just been so good for both of us, and we just we've loved cooperating with you, collaborating with you. And so we we really hope people buy the book that you put it together, not just to read our chapters, but to read all of it and and really to get the conversation started. Yeah. You are allowed to think differently about health. Everybody out there, it's allowed. Yeah. <laughs> it's allowed. So thank you so much. Uh, we I echo what Liz said. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And I, I feel the same way about you guys. I feel like, you know, as I said, I, your guys' podcast was the first one I listened to. And so I, I, publishing Deconstructing Hell is a very roundabout way to get on that podcast, but you know, it, <laughs> so it came full circle, but I appreciate you guys. And thank you for all you do and all the contributions you make to everybody that, you know, is struggling to think about what to do with deconstruction and family. So keep it up. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on our website, deconstructingmamas.com. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter when you get there. If you'd like to support the podcast, join our Patreon network for just $3 a month and have access to our private community with all kinds of extras. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts or just tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.